You're listening to Points in Between. This is episode eight. Here and there. Let's begin with this. I've surprisingly find that the people here seems to more happy about their job. I mean, yeah, even the bus driver are happy about their jobs. I mean, that I don't think that's the situation in China. In basically in in China, we'll never say thank you <laughs> after we. Yeah, get off the bus. But here, I hear some people say that. And yeah, it's really a good way to show appreciation and show respect to everyone who serves you, no matter what you are, who you are, and no matter who he is. This kind of a relationship shows a spirit of equal. That was Xu Hui, an exchange student from China. I asked the people I spoke with about cultural differences they saw when they came here, and also what they missed from home. In this episode of Points in Between, you'll hear about the little and sometimes big things people notice as they settle into a new place. They'll talk about what they learned and what they adapted to. You'll also hear about nostalgia, for their previous home, or at least for some of the ways things used to be. These accounts are interesting for more than their sentimental value, though, of course, that does matter. The people who spoke with me are also members of a unique global community that stretches back far into human history. In the year 1271, two men and a boy set off from Venice en route to China. Or maybe boy isn't quite the right word. By modern U.S. standards, he was the right age to be a junior or senior in high school, 17. So how about I say, the young man, with his father and uncle, sailed across the Mediterranean. They made landfall at a city that's on the border between modern-day Israel and Lebanon. The trio then walked across all of Asia to the coast of China, which was then under the rule of Kublai Khan. They stayed in China for the next 17 years. You've probably heard of the young man. It's Marco Polo. Polo is always referred to as a Venetian, and it's true that by the end of his life, he had lived somewhere between 35 and 45 of his 70 years in Venice. We don't know how much of his childhood was spent in Constantinople. But it's also true that in 1292, when Polo was 38, he had lived more of his life in China than in any other single place. He was not from China, but he knew things about it. And his account of his time in another culture, for whatever inaccuracies it contained, significantly changed European ideas about the non-European world. The practice of bringing or sending young people into other cultures is old. Millions of young people have moved for economic opportunity, or been forced to move as slaves. There's also a long history of intentionally or unintentionally turning young people into a sort of cultural translator by sending them abroad. The podcast 15-Minute History has a really interesting episode about 17th and 18th century French kids sent off to the Ottoman Empire, India, and Southeast Asia for this purpose. But there are lots of examples. Children of West African leaders sent to Europe in the 18th century. 
Chinese and Japanese students sent to Europe and the U.S. in the 19th and 20th century. And let's not forget, young women throughout all of history married off to leaders or merchants in different lands. It's fascinating in part because the accounts sound so modern. The experiences are immediately recognizable. Child emissaries faced conflict with the people who sent them, who sometimes objected to the ways they changed to fit in, and also with their hosts, against whom they had to defend their original identities. They made comparative observations about both where they came from and where they went to. And in the process, they were transformed into people who no longer really existed in the context of a single society. They occupied that sliver of a Venn diagram where the two circles overlap. They became, as the title of this show says, points in between. So as you listen, pay attention to how it feels to learn and adjust to a new community. But also think about the speakers as part of that special community of people who knit human societies together throughout all of history. That's a lot, but we'll begin with something light. I asked Juliana from Brazil about spending time with American friends during her college exchange. They had like this planners, you know, and I was just like, what? <laughs> you know, you have, of course, in Brazil, uh, if you're like a professor, you also have a planner, and uh, but we don't, we're not very used to doing this, you know, having our lives like every single hour we have planned, at least. Yeah, I think, at least not me. <laughs> I don't usually do that. So when people tell me, oh, okay, so you want to go on Saturday at 7, and I'm going to put it on my planner. I was like, okay, good for you. <laughs> All right. <laughs> and then people would ask me, oh, don't you have a planner? Don't you use Google Calendar? I was like, why would I need that? I can just, I have it on my hat. You know, of course, for midterms, finals, I would definitely put on some type of calendar or something like that but not you know to hang out with friends I, I don't know it's just it's just weird for me it's not that Juliana refuses to plan it's that in her experience in Brazil calendars are for work it's just unsettling from that point of view to see your invitation to a friend treated the way you would treat an exam it doesn't stop her from having friends and you can tell from her voice she's bemused not upset but still it's a little thing to adjust to. If you listen to the introductory episode, you'll recognize a part of this clip. Selena moved from Bosnia to the U.S. when she was 12. The first thing that I thought was weird is the desks, because the desks are connected to the chair, and you have to, like, get into it. I thought, this, isn't, this doesn't seem right, because I was like, aren't some people larger and some are smaller? And then um, the other thing was like seeing um, like presentations on a pro projector overhead was super weird. I was like, what is this, you know, magic? <laughs> I was like, it was like a TV on the ceiling. <laughs> um, and I didn't even know like what a water fountain was or how to use one. Um, and no one told me. I just kind of like hung out in the hallway when I was thirsty and tried to like watch other kids and which button they pushed. Even just the seating arrangements and the way that um, some uh, people would run their classrooms, you know, we would have like group activities and we were really encouraged to um, participate and like expose our indiv individuality. But in Bosnia, it's not like that. It's kind of like, you're, I'm teaching you this material. This is what you need to know. Like there was no like, 
you talk to your partner about this or you're going to work in a group, you know, have an activity. Plus, we weren't really like we were so poor that the resources were low. I don't think they even had the resources to do that if they wanted to. And then the other thing was like reciting the Pledge of Allegiance before, you know, in the morning before everything started. And I didn't know it. And my first teacher kind of like looked down on me because he didn't realize that like I didn't know what the heck was going on. So his whole impression of me that I was like rebellious (laughs) and I didn't want to do this. And I was sitting through the Pledge of Allegiance because I don't know what it is. Arguably, many of the things Selena describes were good. Certainly, water fountains and projectors were an improvement over the material conditions of her school in Bosnia. But they were still puzzles to be solved. The other things, understanding why her teacher was upset with her or how to negotiate group work, were bigger tasks that involved hundreds of invisible rules about social interactions. Ruth, who moved to California from Mexico when she was 16, had to learn new ways to interact with people, too. That was a big difference between my life in Mexico in a small town and my life in the U.S. was that we could stay out for walking or, you know, stay out till late. And here in the U.S., it was like either you had a car and you depended on somebody or, you know, you didn't really go out that much. Like, that was very depressing for me. It's not as school-related, but it is very related to how you socialize. And there was a lot of intergenerational socializing in Mexico, partly because you could just either take a pesero into town or walk into town and people were hanging out. And it wasn't, there was a, a place to gather that was, wasn't necessarily someone's house. It was a public space. Ruth's description of cultural difference, you can hear, also contains a touch of nostalgia. It wasn't just a difference, she noted. It was something she missed about Mexico. Let's move into deeper waters. Here's Roya, who came from Afghanistan when she was 14. Keep in mind, she had been taught to treat her teachers with extraordinary respect. One thing that um, I found really was difficult in high school, coming from like Asian cultures and Afghanistan and stuff, so when you talk to the teachers, over there, out of respect, you put your head down, you look down, and then you listen to the teachers. So at one point, like in class, there's something happened. The teacher was trying to talk to me. So out of respect, not looking her eye and eye directly, I put my head down. And she was getting more fierce and stressed out. And she was thinking I was disrespecting her. So every time I would try to look her back and put down, and then she would get more fierce. She was so upset that she actually read a lot of notes <laughs> to my family that I'm disrespecting her. I'm like, she's talking about you know it was just I had to get adjusted to it because it was the beginning was so hard because every teacher's like look at me and I'd be like okay <laughs> so I thought that was like interesting is like the, the culture the differences when you communicate with your teachers and if they don't know your backgrounds how you react and then they get they don't understand it's like why you're not looking them in the eye <laughs> that moment of realization is disconcerting when you learn that the way you're supposed to act in one place is just mystifyingly, arbitrarily wrong in another. Thousands of moments like this one between Roya and her teacher teach a person how to code switch, to shift back and forth between behaviors that fit two cultures. It's a long process that involves a lot of missteps. Raouf's experience transformed not just his behaviors, but his beliefs. You know, when I came to college, I would say I was close-minded. And, you know, when I go back and, and recall those memories, I just feel so ashamed. 
At 16, Raouf was living on a farm in rural Yemen. Two and a half years later, he lived in a college dorm with roommates in California. And per usual, rooming together involved a lot of conversations. And, and one of the debates that we had is about drawing the Prophet Muhammad. The three roommates were arguing against me. What I was saying is that people should um, be aware of the consequences. And therefore, you know, with freedom comes responsibility. But they were going to say no. Why is it only for Islam? Like, why is Islam so special and exceptional? I mean, I can go today and draw geeses, you know, and no one would be offended. But the moment you draw Muhammad, the whole Muslim world go crazy and outraged. And I, I, I honestly, I was just arguing emotionally at that time. I was thinking that they were attacking my identity. Those discussions and debates led to some serious introspection about what it meant to be both Yemeni and Muslim. The Ra'uf who emerged from this experience had, at the same time, a deeper understanding of Yemeni culture, but also a greater distance from it. Linger had two entirely separate experiences of navigating new cultures. First, when she moved from the Gambia to England for high school, and then again when she came to the Midwestern U.S. for college. Her English classmates asked questions about where she was from. And at times, Linger felt unequipped to respond. And then we move into the territory of stupid. So do you see lions every day was like a classic when I was asked when I was about 15. And I was, was I mean, I didn't even really know what to say. I was just like, no, I do not. Um, I was asked if my family lives in trees, which now I look back, I'm like, wow, that's also extraordinarily racist, not just ignorant. Um, but at the time, I mean, you're 15 and you want to fit in, so you don't really put up that much of a fuss, especially because I was just so culturally different. There's a weird mental dislocation that happens when your own understanding of yourself bumps up against who you are and other people's imaginations. One time for work, I went to a fundraiser. I was looking for a particular person in the room to pass along a message. The hostess brought me to where she was standing and, at a break in the conversation, began to introduce me. I held out my hand to say hello, and the woman I was hoping to meet handed me her plate. I wasn't wearing any sort of uniform, but I'm black, and I was in a room full of mostly white, wealthy people in the United States. We stood there awkwardly, me holding the plate between us. Suddenly, in that moment, I was seeing myself from the outside, as if through her eyes. But the me I saw wasn't me. It was a flat, distorted image, lacking all the nuance and history that I feel on the inside. It's jarring. I didn't like it, obviously, but for me, as an adult, the situation fit clearly into a set of racial stereotypes with which I was already familiar. But Linger was young and new to the country. It was not immediately apparent to her why anyone would look at her and think she had grown up in a tree. And if they got the idea from all those pop culture depictions of Africans as, basically, animals, what else might they believe? It's really not easy to figure out the contours of someone else's fantasy about you. Then, immediately on the heels of this surreal moment, comes the question, is this person trying to insult me? 
I had a split second of wondering if the plate was an intentional comment about my appropriate place in the room. Linger, 15, in a new school, had to figure out in a split second where on the continuum the question fell. Was it completely ignorant? Or was it someone's idea of good-natured teasing? Was it meant to be cruel? And even if it was meant to be cruel, how did people in this new culture respond to direct insults? Linger also noticed differences in the benign day-to-day interactions between people in the Gambia, England, and different parts of the U.S. So in Gambia, which is actually called the smiling coast of West Africa, everyone is so friendly. So friendly in a real way. Like, they want to get to know you. They want to, you know, have you over at the house. This is all amazing. Um, and then I moved to England, where everyone treats you exactly the way it is appropriate to treat you given your relationship so your friends are friendly to you and no one else is your acquaintances are very i mean it feels cold but they're just very like straightforward like they're not acting like you're their friend because you are not their friend um and strangers are just like will not engage at all and i was raised to be really respectful especially to my elders so i remember very vividly walking down streets in england when i first got there and like seeing like an older person and being like good afternoon <laughs> they would give me a very strange face and look mildly terrified. Um, and then I moved to the United States, where people are infamously very friendly in a way that is often disingenuous. And I would say that I noticed the difference then between Midwest friendly, which was actually a lot more like Gambia. Like people were like, really seemed to be very genuine and they wanted to make you like tater tot hot dish and like all of these different Midwestern things. And like other Americans who were very friendly but also you weren't really friends with them. And it became like, it messed with my head a little bit sometimes because I'd be walking by someone and they'd be like, how are you? And like, I'd stop like, well, I, oh, they're gone. You know what I mean? Like just the way you casually interact felt a little bit different. So I think at first I was a little taken aback and couldn't exactly figure out who my friends were. This type of knowledge about how to behave in a social network was part of what made child emissaries valuable. This is the skill set that opened doors for merchants and smoothed the way for diplomatic negotiations across history. And making sense of a new social order is hard. It's more than just mastering a set of behaviors. Siobhan arrived from Wales for college in Wisconsin with one understanding of social organization. She gradually learned that her classmates saw the world very differently. I assumed that the graduate students would be a mixture of different classes of people and it turned out they were all like upper middle class and that was shocking to me and I didn't realize it at first I grew to realize it over a period of a year and I found out that so many of them had been to private schools and that that was a shock I was not expecting that what it was that started to make it difficult was the conversations around diversity Uh, Wisconsin like a lot of other universities was trying to have a very active conversation around um diversity or the lack thereof on campus and particularly graduate students who were responsible for teaching these classes and we were required to go to workshops about you know how to be sensitive to difference in the classroom and I found those workshops very very difficult because the only kinds of diversity that were talked about was racial diversity even though in Wisconsin in particular you have a lot of working class kids and they have a lot of first generation kids and being a first generation kid I know how difficult that also is but these kind of white upper middle class graduate students firstly couldn't see it and secondly didn't want to talk about it 
but they were very happy and com comfortable to talk about racial difference and yet had a complete blind spot when it came to class as though that didn't affect in any way somebody's experience of college. And so that became very difficult and frustrating for me. Did you engage in any conversation specifically with people about it? No, I didn't. Um, I would now, <laughs> but I didn't back then because I was still, though I was frustrated, I was also very confused about it. Do you feel like there's shame around class? Like, why do you think Americans don't talk about it? I don't know if it's, maybe it's shame, but my guess is that because there's this idea that in this country you can do whatever you want if you work hard enough, uh, I don't think people really want to believe that that's not actually true <laughs> um, because that gets right at the heart of what America is supposed to be. And I think they don't want to face up to the fact that there is potentially in increasingly for some groups, it's not much of a change for others, less and less mobility and that it looks like for white people in particular, like perhaps class is solidifying and a lot of white people can't move anymore, but they don't want to face up to that. On the flip side, people are pretty happy to talk about race, even though they won't necessarily be super honest about it. So there's something about being happy to talk about that category of difference um, and not liking the other category of difference because that category of difference complicates the former one. Is aspiring to have upward class mobility not, like, is it fine to stay in the same class that you are? Yeah, a lot more so than here. Um, there's actually pride in your class, but there's particularly pride in the working class in, in Britain and particularly in Wales because we don't really have much of a middle class. And so people aren't tending to try to fight for upward mobility too much. Um, and there can sometimes be a sense of cool around the working class. Yeah, it's not something people try to hide. Um, it is also much easier to identify somebody's class in the UK from their accent, from maybe from their clothes, from their mannerisms, from the way that they talk, their dialect. So it sort of sticks to your skin a lot more. And so in some ways, even if you do manage upward mobility, people will still read you as of the working class they'll read you as new rich and maybe a bit tacky it never can really you can never really get rid of it unless you perform differently siobhan's position enabled her to reflect on both wales and her school community in the u.s let's focus again though on the people having these experiences it's possible to find a place both interesting and exhausting or to see the value of it while desperately missing where you came from just like other members of their community across time, the people I spoke with found the process of learning a new culture difficult, tiring. They missed familiar places and people and language. They missed home, even when home was complicated. Juan came from El Salvador to the U.S. when he was 16. I was very homesick, mainly for my friends. So um, cause I talked to the, to the school back there, and um, they were... Um, the the school year you know was ending when I, when I came to the U.S. so and the school year starts about by mid late January so the green card you know once once they you know they take fingerprints and everything here at the airport um, takes about three months so though I talked to the school and they told me you know that if I if by the time I got a green card they could still take me in even if the school has started for a couple of weeks two or three weeks. Um, they were just, I was just going to have to work extra hard, and I was like, okay, I'll do it. 
So my sister, older sister and brother, they were, of course, they were, they were staying back there at the time. So I told my parents, I can just live with my sister. Now she's, because my brother was living in a different city, because he's a lot older than me, but my sister was still in the house that we were living at. So I was like, I'm just going to stay for her, with her for, you know, for the last year of my school year, and then I'll come back. They were like, okay, we'll think about it, but that never happened. They were like, no, at the end, you know, you're 16, you're 16. My sister was about her mid-20s at the time, so, and my brother was pretty much living his own life already, and they were like, no. So that was frustrating. Unlike Juan, who still saw a possibility of returning to his friends in his old community, Shiraj knew there was no going back to his boarding school in India. But that didn't stop him from missing it. Yeah, it's really hard to think about it. When I moved here, I used to, like, emotionally break down, like, the first two months or maybe even for the first three months I just think about things and then think about the people think about my friends and then I just break down and it's hard to not think about it and then I just had to stop thinking about it have you talked to any of your teachers about like where you went to school before and what that transition was like or do you just sort of like talk about class and that's it I've talked to one teacher about that um my French teacher um she's really nice um because like one day during after tutorial or something, we just got like start talking, and then I told them about the about my school, and then I also like it's also because I felt I felt proud of going to that school, and um, I felt nice telling her about it. But um, uh, I told her about, it, and then I also forwarded her a video, which which is about my school. It's like 15 minutes long. It's totally it's everything about my school. My last year's history teacher also kind of knows but not as much in depth as as much as you know right now most of the teachers just like oh he moved from india he's new here that's that's how everyone is but only one or two teachers know that my experience is different from the other people who moved from india there are so many layers to this nostalgia it's not just about wanting to do the same things he used to do or be with the same people he used to be with it's about missing a feeling the feeling of being intimately known by a community who shared his history, of being seen for who he is. And the irony is that even if he moves back to India after high school and college here in the U.S., there will then again be a different part of him, an American experience that isn't knowable by many of the people in his community. This part of my conversation with Jessica began with her describing cultural differences she saw as a kid between her neighborhood in Chicago and where she lived in Mexico City. In Mexico, like, you will know, like, who your neighbor is, who that kid got married to. Like, you will know all the gossip. So I think that's interesting. And even the children, like, over there, like, they're more engaged because they also, they go out and play on the street because we don't really have parks over there. So you go out and play on the street and then you will know, like, okay, four kids come out of this house, eight kids come out of this house. So so you really get to know everybody. It segued into a reflection on returning to Mexico. I don't, I don't think I would want to go back now because, like, I don't really know the place. But I remember the first couple of years when I was here and I was just struggling in school. I was like, why am I here? Like, I don't want to be here. Like, I, I felt like I had everything that we needed over there because we weren't as bad, uh, as bad as, like, other people that come here are. I mean, my parents did have their own home. Like, they had their own business, at least. And, you know, like, they were able to, like, 
keep bringing income to the house without like us like struggling too much uh, but the reason why they wanted to come here is because just like violence was getting pretty bad in our neighborhood like before we moved here they actually broke into our house and they stole all, all of my parents things you know like all the valuable things that they had and it was like on plain sight like like midday and my aunt live across the street and she didn't call the cops so you know what does that tell you like you know like that it's not it's not safe and you really can't trust anyone as i listened i could picture 12 year old jessica struggling to make friends in school and learn english and second guessing her parents decision to come to america one of the odd things that you can do over there is that you can own your own transportation and that's what my dad did for business like uh, he owned like uh, a microbus and then you can keep your own fares and that's the way you make your own money in order for you to even drive your route you had to give people money now because otherwise like they would be shooting at you through your route or like or like at the end of your route or your day they know your route like you go through the same thing all over again so if you pass through the bad neighborhood they will know like at 10 o'clock this guy is loaded because he's been working all day and then we'll take everything and they did that to my dad a couple times and then he just got tired and one time we were actually in there with with him i think i was like around i want to say seven and then they stopped us and then they actually held a gun to his uh, head and they're like, give me everything that you have and everything. And they also went in the, to the back and stole everything from the passengers. And my mom was scared. So then she just put a towel over us because she didn't want us to see like, no, my dad has a gun to his head. Like they, she didn't want us to have that sight. But they ended up taking like, like all his money, even his shoes. And I'm just like, like, man, that's just crazy. Just like even like those more, like the little things, even they would, they would take that. Talking with me. Jessica remembered a rich world of kids playing on her neighborhood streets together, but also the robbery of her house in broad daylight. She knew her parents were comparatively better off than they could have been, but her dad was robbed at gunpoint multiple times while earning that livelihood. I interviewed Jessica after I spoke with Juan, and I asked her if, like him, she had ever made a concrete attempt to return. I think I had a plan maybe when I, I was like around high school and I was trying to find a college because I knew then, like, I'm not gonna afford college, so like I had to start getting a plan, and like because I wasn't documented then, uh, a lot of people like give up just once they hit senior year. They're like, okay, well this is it. Either you go to community college because you can afford that, or you just do something else completely, get a job. And so then I didn't want to do that. Like I did, I did want to continue to go to school, and if I couldn't go here, like I was actually planning going back to Mexico. So that was that was actually one of my plans that I was thinking about just returning to go to school. But then I was able to get in school here, so I guess that changed the whole ordeal. So in the end, Jessica's real thoughts about returning to Mexico weren't driven by homesickness. The community she was once a part of had continued on without her, and she too had changed to fit her new home. Omar went to high school in Aleppo, in the midst of the current Syrian war. He and his family left because of the extreme difficulty and danger of living in a war zone. I asked Omar what he missed. I think one of the things that I missed the most, and I still do, and it might not be... It's, I think, the danger you have in your life and the fact that our lives were more interesting, I would call it. There is always this awaiting for something to happen. And most of the times it was bad, but still, there would be something happening. There would be always something new happening. It definitely impacted people negatively, and even me, of course. But still, it has, a, I think, a positive side, which is bringing this, this life to your life by taking it away. I don't know how to describe it. When you're living in a city where tens and hundreds of people are dying every single day there, you start 
like every day you question yourself in the morning whether you're going to make it to bed again in the night or not and i think that's a really interesting process that happens because it creates lots of lots of reflection within your mind on your own actions on your own sayings and on on the whole length of your life and what have you done in it because you start thinking oh this this string might end soon so i better do something productive or or impactful in it even within those worst situations and i don't know the most dangerous cities in the world there's always life and there's always something going on and there's always people that are that are going to be just ignoring all of that and being like here i am i want to do what i want to be doing this is also nostalgia not for war itself but for the feeling of a certain existential weight to day-to-day decisions also Omar does miss home. One of the also the things I really miss and remember is the people, the, the city as a whole. And when when I say that I want to go back home, people always ask me, "Or oh, like, do you still have family there?" And I'm like, "No, like my actually my the fa- actual family that I have there in Germany. That also most of my friends left." And they our reply with like, "Oh, then why do you want to go?" And that's the thing that does I don't understand because for me, Aleppo is not just. The, those couple of friends that I had or family or it's it's way more than that it's it's just, it's like a city it's a city that had life it's a city that had activities and people and streets and I had memories in it I had experiences in it I had lots of like spheres that I would be present in in that city and that's that's what make me misses it miss it it's not it's not only the fact that oh I have family that's why I need to go and I don't need to go there. It's I want to go there. It's just the connection that I have with this past of mine that I had there. In this episode, you heard accounts that fit into a long history of young people moving across borders and becoming literate in multiple cultures. Hopefully, you also heard the emotions involved in that process. Episode 9 of Points in Between is about putting down new roots. You'll hear about making friends and negotiations with parents as students adapt to life in an American school. Points in Between is a production of the California Global Education Project. I'm Shane Carter. See the Points in Between webpage for additional information about each episode. You can find it at CISPisglobal.org. Look under the Resources tab.